With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Support for this episode comes from Modern Football Technology. Modern Football Technology provides real-time opponent tendencies and self-scout while eliminating manual data entry into Huddle, DV Sport, and Exos. If you're tired of tools that are time-consuming to learn and perform inconsistently at best, then we recommend Modern Football for a fresh perspective. Schedule a demo today at teammofo.com to see a battle-tested tool that's proven to perform and deliver value. Mention Coach and Coordinator Podcast or use the coupon code CC10 to receive 10% off your first year. And listen to our recent episode featuring Folsom High School Defensive Coordinator Jordan Ersick to learn more about how the 2023 California State Champion uses modern football to dominate their opponents. On today's podcast, we share an episode from our archives, a more recent one, but I think a very impactful one with Michael Lombardi, former GM, former coach in the NFL, Super Bowl champion with the New England Patriots, but an incredible book that he's written. I highly recommend that you pick that up and put it on your shelf. It's one that I've found myself referring back to often since I first read it, and I want to thank Coach Rick Jones at Mizzou for recommending this book and re- recommending that I get in touch with Michael Lombardi. Just an incredible uh, story that he has to share as well as some great ideas that you're going to want to think about incorporating into what you do right now. Enjoy. I've been fortunate to coach many successful teams over the years, so I'm excited to tell you about Signature Championship Rings, a championship ring company who perfectly captures your winning season and fits your budget. Signature Champions specializes in fully customized rings for your high school and college teams, partnering with more than 10,000 teams across the country. What sets Signature Champions apart is the coach experience. The ring ordering process is streamlined and hassle-free with Signature Champions ensuring their coaches feel like MVPs every step of the way. Visit SignatureChampions.com podcast and get your team championship rings today. Use the code podcast to receive a free coach ring and ring box with your team's ring order. Link is in the show notes. And listen to our entire champion series presented by Signature Championship Rings to learn from state champion head coaches on how to take your program to the top. I am very excited to have our guest today. I've read his book. I've actually listened to it as well. It's one that I keep going back to. I I can't put down so many amazing stories in there and that's Michael Lombardi who's the author of Gridiron Genius. Michael it's great to have you here on the podcast. It's great to be here Keith. I appreciate those kind words you said about the book. It was a book that was meant for really the books for coaches period in general and not of of any level little league to professional. It was book so when someone you know who runs in a coaches association says something like that that's really what the book was for. 
Yeah, it's it's an incredible work. Just the way you weaved the stories in with the coaching points, lack of better term here, and the points that are really takeaways just really drove home all those different points. And as I told you before we got started, for me, being from Cleveland and growing up a, a diehard Browns fan, I remember all the games that you were talking about in explicit detail. And then the other thing I told you I loved too was uh, the Bruce Springsteen part. And honestly, you and I could probably sit here and have an entire podcast on either the Cleveland Browns or Bruce Springsteen, but we're going to dig into some of the things in your book. And I hope I do it all justice. I don't know if truthfully we could handle it all in one podcast, but hopefully we give coaches a taste for what is in this book. And it's one that belongs on your on your shelf in your library. You know, I always pull out Bill Walsh's Finding the Winning Edge and Funny enough, I've got three of them here on my shelf. I don't, I don't know why I have three, but I got three of them. And uh, well, those are collectors' items. <laughs> yeah. You have three of those. I mean, those are hard to get. I, I have one that I got Coach Walsh to sign for me, but they're hard to find. More copies, and I've recommended everybody read that book as well. So, uh, yeah, I applaud you for having three. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do with the other two, but the one I go back to and crack open all the time, and this one's going right next to it because it has that kind of impact. And really, there's a lot of books on Bill Walsh out there, but there's nothing that really goes into the detail behind who he is as a coach and what he does as a coach is this one. I think that's really what I what I found from reading about Bill. I think too often people get so caught up with the West Coast offensive bill. They get caught up in smash seven curl. They get caught up in 20 bingo cross. When in reality, Bill was really about the standard of excellence. He was about those principles, those 17 things. And I think that what happens is people can steal his offense and they steal the plays, but they don't understand the principles of what he was trying to accomplish. And I think that's what misses. I think that's what people miss with Belichick as well. I think guys that go on to other jobs, they try to duplicate Belichick with his gruff behavior, his mannerisms, and his cut-off sweatshirts and the pencil behind the ear, when in reality, Belichick's all about culture. It's all about culture. Yeah, I think that's where we make a, a lot of mistakes as, as coaches and guys who can't exactly get to the details, try to imitate and duplicate what they know and what they can see, and, and there's so much more here, and you go into the details of it. But I want to start with, I think, what's a really neat story. You're beginning in, in coaching, and essentially you were the driver. You carried the briefcase of Bill Walsh, and what an incredible opportunity to develop as a coach. Yeah, I mean, look, I had a front row seat. I didn't know it was carpool karaoke because James Corden didn't invent it by then. <laughs> but I knew I was really, I knew I was close, to, as dumb as I was at that point, and as I often say, I was a blank tape. I knew that the information that I was learning was shaping my mindset, and I was smart enough to know that. You know, I knew that that this guy that I was driving and listening to and extending his beliefs to me was unique and that shaped me and it shapes me today. I mean, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't think of coach Walsh or something. He said, I read something in the paper or what a team does or how they behave. And I think back to coach Walsh in that car, and some of the things he said to me along the way. And it goes beyond coach Walsh. You worked for two other icons. We know Bill Belichick. The other one was Al Davis and he was an owner. You were really able to pick up on, a lot about football and a lot about the game and, and just how you need to look at things. Yeah, no doubt. 
you know, and the thing about Al that's unique is the sense that I knew Al before I went to work for Al. So, you know, when you're in personnel, there's not a lot of people you can study. I was fortunate enough to start off with the 49ers when we were in a combine back in 84. There was a four-team combine. It had Buffalo. Norm Pollum was then the general manager of the Bills. It had Seattle. Dick Mansberger was the general manager of the Seahawks. And, of course, the Cowboys, Gil Brandt. So I was able to learn grading systems from Gill. I was able to learn stuff from Mansberger and obviously Norm Pollum at the Bills. And then when, you know, I was there, I was able to study that. But then with Al, I read so much about what Al was about, about size and speed. You know, and back then you had to rely on Sports Illustrated articles or sporting news articles or just some way you could get your hand on it. And I still have a notebook filled with the articles that I read and studied about Al. So when I went to work for Al or when I engaged in my first conversation with Al, actually it was at the New Orleans airport. The combine was in New Orleans one year. That was the first time I ever met Al. And I engaged in a conversation. Like I had done my prep work to have a conversation with him. Like I just didn't start talking to him about some player or something. And then I was able to at least learn from him because with Al – Al was never about giving information out. Al was about collecting information. So you had to bring something to the dance if you were going to get out of talk and teach him. In looking at Coach Belichick, Coach Walsh, you've been able to work for both of those guys, absorb so much. And in your book, you detail out all the things that really you feel make a great coach. But for the the listeners on the podcast, how would you summarize that? Exactly what is it? that makes a great coach. And I know there's a lot of detail in the book, but I guess if you could give us the, the elevator pitch on that. Well, I think you got to look, you've got to be your own man. First, you have to have authentic beliefs and you have to have a belief. You know, when I talk to coaches today at different colleges and I say, if you've got a head coaching job, what do you want to be? And they don't even have an answer for me. And I'm like, look, there's no sense in you going for an interview. You don't know. When Belichick walked into Cleveland in 1991, he handed me a piece of paper that I still have. And on that piece of paper is we are building a big, strong, fast, mentally tough football team. That's, that was what we wanted to be. That's who Bill wanted to be. And so if, as a coach, the first thing you have to have is a plan. You've got to understand who you are as a human being. If you want to be Cliff Kingsbury and be in an open sets and throw option routes and, you know, and be in five-man protections all the time, then that's who you are, right? And if you want to be in two tight ends and – and two backs, then that's fine. That's who you are. You, but you are who you want to be. And then you explain the plan. You have a grading system that allows you to get the team that you want to become, which is what we did in Cleveland. And as a coach, you have to be able to build the process of what you want and be true to your process, not let anybody get in the way of it. And then most importantly, the players have to trust your honesty. You can't be afraid of confrontation. You got to if something's wrong, you've got to step right into it and talk about it. You can't avoid it because every time you avoid something, you allow your culture to erode. The culture is a buzzword today. Everybody wants to to build a strong culture. They're looking right. to different leadership gurus out there. Some who I, right. I think are excellent and really believe in, and in others, there's a little bit of snake oil in what they do. For you, having been a part of two of the greatest cultures in football what are the important things in a culture how do you build a culture cultures of this word it's a little bit like when you have the guy come over and spray for bugs in your house you know he thinks he sprays once and then he leaves either he never has to come back again for six months well that's not culture right culture is something you work on every single day 
when you walk into the Patriots building, the first thing you see is a sign that says, do your job, speak for yourself, be attentive, and put the team first. So that describes their culture. And Belichick clearly defines the job you have, whether it's the secretary, whether it's the GA in the scouting department, whatever it is. He did it in Cleveland. He's done it in New England. Same thing with Coach Walsh. As low level as I was on the totem pole when I first started working there, I knew what my job was. He defined it for me. So once you know what your job is, then it's your job to execute within your job, right? There's no misunderstanding. There's nobody playing outside their lane. And that's how you start to build a culture. And then you have to have somebody who's going to maintain the culture. So when somebody screws up, when Odell Beckham comes in and says, man, I ain't staying in the hotel tonight, and you let him get away with that, you've, you've allowed your culture to take a back seat. You have to be true to the process for everybody because you're putting the team first, right? So that's where I think people get so confused with culture. They think it's just something you spray in the building and it applies to – it's the leader that establishes the culture, but then it's his job to maintain the culture. Everything Belichick does is about the culture. If, if you're a coach and listening to this podcast and you really want to understand culture, read Belichick's quote when Rob Gronkowski retired. He never talked about Rob being a great Patriot player. He talked about Rob being a great teammate. He talked about Rob's impact on the team and how he worked hard. That's how you build a culture. When you don't single out players for doing something outside the team, that's how you do it. And you do it with, with your words and your action like Belichick and Washington. I believe, and I've been studying culture for a long time now as well, and I don't know if you can describe it better. And I think culture needs to be simple, too, in the way that you do it, in that first thing, do your job. And as you talked about, you had all the details of what you were supposed to do. You had the expectations. I mean, you share in your book all the different standards that Coach Walsh, that Coach Belichick have that everybody is accountable for. And I think it's laying out some of those details, being detailed in, in the way you set it up, and then making sure that everybody is following through or being accountable. And I think a lot of that goes into the systems you guys developed whether that be talent evaluation, performance evaluation of your own team, or even the overall big picture things as you're studying a season. You talked about how you would go back through and and study the previous playoff games, playoff appearances to prepare for the one that you're in to make sure that you guys didn't miss anything along the way. And I mean, it is the details there. I mean, you guys went through them with a fine tooth comb. No doubt. I mean, that's Bill. I mean, that's all Bill. Bill and, and Walsh was the same way. He was constantly in search of trying to find different ways to do it. It's the difference between being divergent in thought and creative in thought. People think Coach Walsh is creative in thought. Everybody uses the word creative with the West Coast offense. It's not creative. It's divergent. Because as I talk about in the book, he had Virgil Carter, a guy that was really smart, was accurate on short passes, and he utilized his mind and his weak arm to develop an offense that allowed his strengths to come through, West Coast offense, long handoffs. That's divergent. That's not creative. And same thing with Belichick. Belichick, every week's different game plan is not creative. It's divergent. He takes the existing problem and finds different solutions for him within his own scheme. And I think that's what you have to do. And I think oftentimes because we are so preoccupied with doing the job we have, we don't spend enough time training the people that work around us to do what they have to do and understand their job. And 
the other factor we make, and I talk about this in the book, is that if you want to learn culture, watch the movie Hoosiers. Because what Coach Dale does with that team is ultimately the greatest culture builder of all time. He's got Jimmy Chitwood, who's his best player on the team. Everybody in the town's kissing his ass. Everybody in the town wants him to play. Everybody wants him to do this. And basically, Coach Dale says, hey, Jimmy, if you want to play, great. If you don't want to play, that's fine, too. But we're going to play my way. We're going to play this style. And if you can't adapt to it, you're better off not. Instead of kissing his butt, he ignored him. He practiced what we call the law of threes. And next thing you know, Jimmy Chitwood's back on the team and back on wanting Coach Dale back. That's a culture movie. That's what that is. And that's what I try to project in my book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. The other thing that really came through as you were talking about systems, like the evaluation part of our game is so important. I mean, in reading this, I had been thinking about that a lot, about the evaluation side of things. You know, talk with Dan Hatman about it, who, who runs a scouting academy, he used to be a scout. And this is something that's been on my mind for a long time. You guys just really... I mean, now your system is really, like you mentioned, throughout the NFL, but you guys did it in a different way than what everybody was doing it at the time. Talk to our listeners here and give your thoughts on how important it is, even at the high school level, that we're really right on with evaluation. Because I think what I believe is that evaluation and giving that feedback, that proper feedback, that feedback that's going to help your player is really part of building that strong culture as well. It's part of do your job, right? That guy has to understand and get the correct feedback. And if we're not good at evaluation, we're probably fracturing our culture. No doubt. You definitely are fracturing your culture. And I think what happens oftentimes after a game, Jackson Brown has a line in one of his songs. He says, we forget about the losses and we exaggerate the wins. But when we win, we go on to the next game. And when we lose, we think, well, we got a bad call. And 90% of the coaches and this is not being disrespectful to anyone, 90% don't realize why they won and why they lost. Belichick spends an inordinate amount of time, and same thing with Coach Walsh, after every single game, and he asks the questions, why did we win, why did we lose? When I used to get on the team playing for the Raiders, Al Davis would come ask me, do you know why we won today or do you know why we lost? And if I gave him a bullshit answer, I'd get my head snapped off. You know, I had to give him the right answer. You know, Andy Reid thinks he lost because he didn't get the ball in overtime against the Patriots. Of course he didn't lose because he didn't get – that's ridiculous. He couldn't stop him on third down. He had one of the worst game managements in terms of his play calling and, and all of football when he had the ball down by three points with three minutes to go in the game at the Patriot 30. He throws two incomplete passes, and he gives Tom Brady more than enough time to come back down the field and beat him. So it's not overtime. You have to spend time studying why you won – 
why you lost. And after every single game, you ask these questions. Do you do things, things we did well, things we did poorly, things we were not prepared for, game plan errors, critical mistakes, practice mistakes. Because if you don't go over those six things after a game, after, after you watched your practices, you're never going to get better for the next game. And you're never going to figure out why you won or why you lost. And I think those six that you mentioned, you know, that's something anybody can do at any level of football. It doesn't necessarily, though you at the NFL level have a, a team of analysts, you have the guys who pour over the film and pull those things out. Those are things that coaches at every level can do, uh, whether that's on their own or with a small group of coaches. You can identify those things. And those things, if you do that, they're going to help you get better the next week. They're going to help you get better over the course of a season. No doubt. And if you don't do them, and if you're not honest with yourself, you can't sit there and pat yourself on the back after a win. I mean, sometimes you got to be realistic and honest with yourself and say, look, we were fortunate to win that game. You know, we got lucky because just the ball bounced right for us. And then it allows you to build off of it. Because remember this, the secret to all victory lies in the organization of the non-obvious. And if you can't figure out what the non-obvious is of all games, then you can't, in any sport, then you can't advance. You're never going to achieve a championship. And too often we practice what I call functional fixedness, which means that you just keep doing the same things you've done over and over again without really understanding what controls the outcome of football games. Like, for example, no one talks on television about the middle eight, which are the last four minutes of the first half and the first four minutes of the second half, Mm -hmm. which are the most critical of any time you play football. The middle eight really controls the game. We know this in pro football. The teams that have the lead at halftime, the teams that have the first half point differential. Last year, it was the Chiefs and the Rams. The year before that, it was the Patriots and the Eagles. The year before that, it was the Patriots and the Falcons. The teams that win in the first half point differential typically go, are going to go to the Super Bowl. The, the Patriots finished, I think, third last year. They went. The Rams were second. The Chiefs were first. That first half differential is so critical because what Walsh believed in the West Coast offense, it was never about smash seven curls. It was about we're going to throw the ball to get the lead, and we're going to play from in front. So the middle eight allows you to do that. And so those are the non-obvious things that you have to practice each week. Well, you guys spent a lot of time on, on practicing and discussing and having a plan for a lot of the things that people take for granted. And as you're talking about the, the middle eight there, Remind me about a, a part in the book and what you guys would do with the coin flip, knowing that you could defer and most of the time be able to get what you want at the beginning of the game. I was the opposite. For whatever reason, high school level, people want to defer and, and not get the ball first. College level, the same thing. So for me, it was always, well, let's get the ball first. Let's establish something. And we know in 99% of the games, whether we win the toss or lose the toss, we're going to get the ball first. That was always my mentality, and I had a reason for it. You guys go beyond that. With why you want to defer and the importance of that last drive of the half and then the first one, if you're able to come out the door with the ball in the second half, I think it was just some really important things you guys discovered and studied about that point in the game and why you want to defer starting. Yeah, I mean, look, I think what people confuse football games, because it's so much like chess, people get caught up in having the white piece in chess. If you have the white piece in chess, which means you move first, you can control the chessboard, right? Well, 
in the middle eight, what we're talking about is really having the black pieces but orchestrating the game so that by the end of the first half, you basically have the white pieces. And you do that by, if you get the ball with four minutes to go in the half, and you're like, go back and watch the Chief game when the Patriots start their drive, and I think the Patriots own 12-yard line. The first play is a run. The second play is another run. They get a first down. They don't go into their hurry-up offense. They take their time because their mission here is to either score, that's the first thing they'd like to do, but more than score, they want to make sure there's no time left on the clock so the Chiefs can't score because they know they're going to get the ball to start the second half. So it's how you orchestrate that four minutes at the end of the half. You can convert it from being the black pieces to the white pieces just by your play calling and your preparation. You've got to have plays that you know can be successful at that point in the game based on your adjustments during the game or based on your practice habits. I think as I translate that down to the other levels, and the thing you brought up too is being able to take a good quarterback out of rhythm, that if you do it right and really take up some time in that last drive and then come out and take up some time and score in the first drive of the half, that real time, you could put a quarterback or an offense on the bench for nearly an hour of real time. You're icing those guys. It's happened to me yep. before as a coach. I could think of one game I coached in. We return a kickoff, then they score, we get a pick six, we kick off again, then it was like halftime, and we come out, return the opening half kick, and I'm like, I'm thinking like, man, I could have taken a nap, like I'm not doing anything here in this game as the offensive coordinator, but the rhythm as an offense, it took us some time then, it was like we were playing right at the beginning of the game again. No doubt. And then, look, you've got to adjust your play call. And say you went through that whole exercise and the score was tied, but now you get the ball back, you're down 14 points. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, whatever you were preparing for for the second half in terms of how you wanted to play, you say you get the ball back with nine minutes to go in the third quarter and you're down 14. That's a different game than being up three with nine minutes to go in the third quarter. So there's always this fundamental question you have to ask as a coach, no matter what level, is who's in control of the game and who's in the lead. Who's ever in the lead doesn't necessarily mean they're in control. And so you constantly have to weigh that balance and go through it and figure it out. You're always asking yourself that question. Belichick is in a mad rush in the first quarter to figure out, and this is really all he cares about, to figure out, did we practice what we're getting? Are we prepared? Is the game going the way we thought it's going to go? And if it's not, what adjustments do we need to make? And if it is, How do we make sure that we stay within sync? Those are critical. I know the other thing you talked about, and I can't remember if if this was in your your pet peeves section of the book or exactly where it was, but the idea of being able to get into third and manageable, and I know that's something we hear from the commentators, but I know it's kind of a philosophy Uh, that a lot of guys carry. It drives me crazy third and manageable like seriously third and manageable if you're a really good third down team you you know you're at you're at 45 46 percent right I mean that's a really good third down team most teams are in the low 30s I mean to get in third and manageable now you're at 30 percent are you really going to do good at that area so instead of and sit there you're playing against Mike Zimmer who's a really good third down defense coordinator you need to convert third downs on second down but how do you do that? You don't do that by saying, okay, I'm going to call second down. You do that by practicing on your first day of practice 
on the second down calls. You have a period, 10 minutes. We're going to spend 10 minutes on second down calls. The players know how important second down is by you emphasizing it in practice. Because we get too stuck in the same practice schedule that we've always had. We get too stuck in it. And so we got to change the practice schedule based on how we're going to play the game. If we know we want to be a conversion team on second down, then we should always have second down and second and eight, second and nine practices, and we have a ton of plays there. But too often coaches have more plays for third and manageable than they do for second down. Yeah, one of the best things I saw out at practices over the years, I think I got this one, I was at Ball State and saw Stan Paris do it. It was a second and eight scrimmage, like during practice. So they would go basically second and eight, call play, and then they'd have to, if they had a third down, which they didn't want to do, they'd have to manage the third down. But the thing you equated it to and said, you know, worth taking a look at is how do they call plays in the CFL where they only get three downs? Right, right. And then and then I think the other area that gets overlooked and not enough attention to detail in, and it's one of the things that it's the non-obvious, is those third and ones. Everybody, those third and ones are so critical. And you know, we think that we take them for granted. Why do you think New England on second and one, Brady quarterback sneaks it? Because they know how hard it is on third and one. <laughs> they, they know that people say, well, that's second and one. You've got a chance to have a play you could take advantage of. No, no, no. Second and one, no. I mean, we're going to get the first down. First downs, we'll take a chance on first and ten. We're going to get the easy first down. And so it's all your mindset, and I think it's divergent thinking. And I know, again, in your pet peeves, another one was making it more complicated than it is. Yeah. Well, I think that's where people really, that's where people get it confused. People want it to be, we want to have new plays, new ideas. Well, Dan Henning told me this once when I was a young coach in the league. He said, you know, if you don't have any tendencies, you're not any good. You've got to get good at something, right? And so when you're getting ready to play an opponent, if you don't have got to have it plays, which we call got to have it plays, meaning when you need a play, who's getting the ball? When the Bulls are playing, Michael Jordan was going to get the ball. When they got to have it, Michael Jordan was getting it, right? So it's the same thing in football. And that's what I wrote about in the book. We knew Owen Daniels was going to get the ball when they got to have it, right? Right. But we didn't stop him well enough. We practiced it for two weeks, but we still look, you're still going to make mistakes. It's not lockproof, but you got to practice those things. And what happens is by you emphasizing it to the team, you basically are teaching the team football 101. They're learning about it. Coach, I know the other thing you emphasized in your pet peeves was coaches not getting enough credit. And really, I think you call them like the six rock stars, I guess, on every coaching staff and guys who got to be really good and affect the game, have a positive effect on the game. When I look at young guys coming through, everybody wants a title and wants to jump to this or that. But there's a great coach can really affect the game. He doesn't have to necessarily be the head coach or coordinator either. And you talked about studying that. And again, for you, putting it into a system of evaluation, what does that look like? What is a good coach and staff and how do they impact the game? Well, I think there's six coaches that I talked about. Obviously, the head coach, the offensive and defensive coordinator, the two line coaches are critical, right? And then the special teams coach. So you take those six and you really put them. And, and, you know, most defensive linemen are tough to handle, right? We all, the kids that play defensive line are not always the five beta kappa guys. They're not always the self motivated guys. They're always guys that are really talented that you got to get them to work hard. So you need a drill instructor there. 
be somebody who's going to demand from them. You can't have them have somebody who's their best friend. And then the offensive line coach, he's got developed talent. I mean, he's got developed talent. Al Davis used to say this to me all the time. Make the coaches feel like they're high school coaches. Not disrespectful to high school coaches, but high school coaches, as you know, you can't call up your general manager and say, get me three new players in today, right? There's no new players coming into high school. Right. You've got to coach who you have. You've got to make better with what you have. That was his point. And it's the same thing in pro football. You've got to make players better when you get them. That's the key. That's the secret sauce to New England. Dante Skarnecki gets a guy. He's better for them than he is for anybody else. When they leave, they're not as good. And that's really the essence of a coaching job is don't tell me the, what Walsh used to say. Don't tell me what the player can't do. Let's figure out what he can do and make him do that well. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And you have a section of the book you talk about program guys that I think the quote was from from Coach Belichick that we're not collecting talent, we're building a team. And I know I haven't been on the recruiting side of things in college ball, but also looking at you know the high school side of things, we always talk about program guys, and that's kind of almost like a negative. The kid doesn't have a ton of value, but he's good for the program. You guys are obviously looking for the right talent and for a guy who fits into the program as well. And there's been a lot made and media talks about it all the time. Guys who maybe aren't a great fit somewhere else yet somehow become very productive and successful within your program. No doubt. I think sometimes that program term makes it apply that the players, you know, an overachiever and no, he's just a guy that puts the name on the front of the Jersey is more important than the name on the back. What is mental toughness? As I define it in the book, Belichick talks about it all the time. Mental toughness is doing what's good for the team when it may not be good for you. And that's a program guy. That doesn't mean he's less talented. That just means he believes that the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. And when guys start worrying about the name on the back more than the name on the front, you don't have a program guy. You can't win. Your culture is going to erode very quickly. And you can't really manage that guy. You can't handle that guy. So that's what we were always looking for, guys that cared about football, guys that wanted the team to be successful. And then once you had those kind of guys that will work hard, then you could start focusing on the points of the game, the non-obvious points, and make do. The other thing that impacted me, I remember we used to have a period, and I, I must have got it from reading something about what you guys did. We called it opportunity time. I know you call I think you called it opportunity period or it was something built in your practice every day where uh, you guys were developing the next players, those guys down the line. Yeah, I think we were all about player development. We were all about trying to handle what we had to do and how we did that. 
and we needed more time to do it. So therefore, it was critical that we had those extra periods, and the players got more coaching. And so what happened, it started in Cleveland. We would basically send in the first-team coaching staff, the Kirk Forenses and all the other guys, and then we had the second-team staff out there stay out there and work that. You mentioned in the book also, though, thinking about those guys, a lot of times they play scout team for us, and I can't remember the defensive lineman you talked about, but he was an incredible scout team player because – the scout card removed the thinking. It removed the decision-making. When I think about our game today and what we're trying to do with our players, and I'm really re- equating this to the high school level, I guess the thing that really came to my mind as I was reading about that in your book was, you know, do we do our younger players a disservice of running everything off of scout cards? Is there a way we could do it better so that they do have to think and develop their decision-making and vision and all those things that are required when they're out there running real plays rather than ones drawn up on a card. Yeah, once you allow a player to not have to react and play, you really aren't judging them. You have to understand there's certain periods as a coach that they're not evaluation periods. They're like, for example, nine on seven. You put a nine on seven period together and you'll see 15 coaches running down, scouts running down to the nine on seven to watch it, and they're taking notes and evaluating the players. Nine on seven is not an evaluation period. It's a, it's a toughness period. You can evaluate their toughness, but when you know it's all run, you can't evaluate. Mm-hmm. Football's a game of run or pass. So when you've taken the game and made it all run, and the players know it's run, you can't evaluate them. That's not fair. You're going to misjudge the evaluation. So it's the same thing with card players guys that look really good with the card because the card tells them where to go. Like example for a receiver. Receiver knows where he's going because the card tells him, but then in the game, he's not sure what coverage he's reading. It becomes a problem. Yeah, that's, as you mentioned, that nine on seven period, that inside run period. As I went on to spring ball practices over the last month and a half or so, one of the trends I saw was that the inside run the way we used to do it, disappeared, turned into an 11-on-11 period. The focus was the run game, but you were going to see play action thrown in there. You're going to see screens thrown in there. You're going to see some RPOs, whatever, you know, screens being like the receiver screens out on the edge or whatever. The focus around some of those elements and really keeping those players in check and not letting them cheat the drill. Right, that's right. To me, so you should just call this period a team period so the players don't get the sense that they kind of think they know what's coming next. And I think that's really what you want to do is make practice harder than the game. Practice execution becomes game reality. Just thinking through and looking at the different parts of, of your book, one story I guess I really loved was your dinner. I think you said Bill's wife was out of town and he invited Nick Saban over and you got to be a part of that dinner that night. <laughs> Just Talk to us. I know you share it in the book, but talk to us a little bit about that experience and the, you know, what you're doing sitting with two of the greatest coaches in the game, just learning ball that night and it absorbing from what they're talking about. Both of them are lifelong learners. I mean, I think that's the number one thing I could tell you from that dinner is they're both lifelong learners. Both of them weren't there to tell the other one how smart they were. Both of them were there to learn from one another. I mean, that's critical, right? And so Nick's playing against all this 
read option, and we're, we haven't to the level hasn't really hit. And Bill's picking his brain on how he wants to deal with it. Nick's picking his brain on how he's dealing with some other things. So it was a truly a think tank, and that's what makes these two guys, from my time together with them in Cleveland, so unique. Because in Cleveland, when we were all together, Nick was a zero-pressure guy. Bill was a cover-two guy. And there was a meeting of the minds, and Nick has an adjustment to every call. Bill is, doesn't want to have a lot of adjustments. Bill wants the players to play fast and, and not have to think all the time. So you're talking about two guys from diametrically different backgrounds that come together because of their basic love of football and their lifelong learning is really what made this dinner so impactful. And it taught me that no matter how successful you are in life, you still have things to learn. And Belichick's taking notes. Nick's taking notes. Nick's serving dinner. And Belichick's writing stuff down. Nick's writing stuff down. It was really impactful as a young coach. You think you got it, you really don't. You need to keep going and keep learning. Absolutely. Probably should have put this up towards the beginning of the interview because I think one of the most important things you really emphasized, especially for Coach Belichick, was the value of special teams. And again, I was just blown away by the detail you described there and how you guys went into things. And, and I loved your chapter that kind of weaved through that punt return by Eric Metcalf when you guys were with the Cleveland Browns and ended up with Springsteen born to run playing when he scored. I love that part of how that just weaved in and out of it as you described the detail that went into just that one play you were talking about there in the game planning and how that evolved over the course of the week. But really, overall, it certainly emphasized the point of how important special teams are and how they can make a difference in a program and a culture and an organization. Once you tell players you're too good to play in the kicking game, you've now basically hurt your culture. You know, when you have that mentality, you can't play in the kicking game because, you know, we don't want to get you hurt. What are you telling about the guy who's playing in the kicking game? You don't care if he gets hurt, you know? And so if you want all in, if you want to build an all-in culture, the only chance you have is to do it for the kicking game. Make the kicking game important. Make everybody realize how important the kicking game is. And, look, the kicking game controls. We're trying to reduce the rules in the kicking game lately. We understand that. The NFL is trying to help with injuries and all that. But the reality here is is we can't. It impacts the game, field position, control of the game, making plays in the game. And then that game was the perfect example. I mean, we were basically a wounded team. Our quarterback got hurt in the game. Bertie Kosar really wasn't able to play to the same level that the fans thought he could play at. And yet we found a way to win that game. I remember that punt return. That was an exciting game. Your yeah, book. I mean, look, that play, that, that play, you know, Metcalf wasn't even going to supposed to play that week. And he came in back in and he took that return right down the right sideline, right in front of our bench. And we won that game, and it was really remarkable. And that bonded, even though we, we fell apart that year because of the quarterback, but that play really bonded our team together and understood that special teams matter. Yeah, and after that, I had looked up some highlights of, of Eric Metcalf. When you talk about a player who had a ton of value in the other parts of the game, man, he was so dynamic. And you're putting your player back there, which a lot of people would view as, oh, that's that's risky. I wouldn't do that. But, man, that guy did everything for you. I mean, incredible both in the passing game and in, in rushing the football. No doubt. And they made an error in judgment. They kicked to him, which if they kicked the ball out of bounds, they're probably going to win that game. That's right. Well, Coach, your book is called A Masterclass in Winning Championships and Building Dynasties. There's a subtitle of it. 
your life as you described it as a coach has been a master class as well. You've picked up an incredible amount. You've been able to be around some great guys, develop things with them. The last question I always like to ask on this podcast is really created off the title of Bill Walsh's book. And it's this coach, what's the one thing as you look at all the the things you've done within your profession as a coach, what's the one thing you had to point to one, the thing that really gives your team, your guys, the winning edge. I think to think divergently, I think you have to take problems and really understand it and break it down. Don't always think the solution is A or B. Really spend time trying to analyze. And just because everybody does it one way doesn't mean you should do it that way. Don't be afraid to think differently. Think outside the box. Because as Bill Walsh said, and I talk about it in the book, if we're all thinking alike, no one's thinking. Absolutely. I highly recommend this book to all coaches at all levels. I don't care what side of the ball you are on. I don't care what your role is. If you're starting, if you're towards the end of your career, This book will make an impact on how you coach and how you see the game. You could pick up a ton from it. It is definitely a cover-to-cover read, but it's something I think you can use as a resource, as I mentioned, to pull out from time to time and look things up. My only criticism of the book, Michael, is that there's not enough room for notes in here, and uh, (laughs) I had to use separate pages. So thank you for writing this, really. It is something I think that helps our profession out, and you have some great ideas in there. I'll put the links to it so our listeners can get to it from our show notes as well and i just want to tell you thank you and i appreciate your time and for taking the time to be here on the podcast thank you so much keith i appreciate it thanks for having me thanks remember in the end nobody wins unless everybody wins come what time Thanks again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Please keep tuning in. New content coming soon, including our episode tomorrow with the Pirate. You're going to enjoy that one. We have uh, some stuff that's never heard, been heard before from Coach Leach. We'll be sharing that on the podcast, as well as an introduction and thoughts on the game from the godfather of the air raid offense, Hal Mummy. Tune in tomorrow for that one. If you aren't enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes and click five star for rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps. And follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski. Back to death trap, to suicide trap.